Oh, you're recording. I forgot. I'm sorry. I'll start over. No, I won't. <laughs> um, so we are in the midst now. I believe this is week six. Next Sunday is Pentecost. So it is the end of Eastertide, and we move into the season of Pentecost, where we celebrate the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The, the paraclete, that's right. My Bible study knows we call it the paraclete <laughs> because it has the fullness of a definition. Yeah. Never mind. Um, anyway, that, be, that happens next Sunday. This Sunday for me is Confirmation Sunday, so I've kind of, I'm now thinking about nine kids who are going to make their confession of, of Christ as Lord and Savior at the, at the worship service today, so that's where my mind yeah. is in all that's, this. That's great. All right. Good to have you Thank all here. You. Thank you. Yeah, I, it's fascinating to me when you're in a context of uh, church calendar to pay attention. If you're in that context, it really can be a helpful aid. So, good morning. Uh, we're not talking about uh, church calendars today. We're talking about Venus, believe it or not. So, uh, uh, what I want you to do right at the beginning, <coughs> you'll see in the intro, it says, what if. Now, when you go to a, a play or to a movie, there's an implied contract between you and the people that are putting on the production. And it is called the willing suspension of disbelief. And what does that mean? <coughs> you, you must adopt a willing, a volitional willing sense of disbelief when you go to a play or to a movie or you ruin the uh, theatrical effect that it could have upon you. So what is the, yes? So you're, you're willing to not apply <coughs> your normal sense of logic. You will engage in the fantasy if there Thank is you. a fantasy that's being portrayed. Well, it is a fantasy in, in some form. Sure. Even if it's not like a fantasy, it's a play, and we know it's make it made up. Yes, that's, that's awesome. Great definition. And if you don't do that, if you stride into a, uh, a production of Shakespeare or to a movie and you do not say, okay, I am now entering into their world and I'm going to willingly suspend my sense of disbelief, if you do not do that, then what? <laughs> yes, you don't have any fun. Uh, I mean, can you imagine uh, wh what's... What's hot right now in the theaters? The Avengers. The Avengers. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, and they were making that movie in Cleveland last year. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you don't suspend your normal sense of understanding and go see that movie, it's going to be a horrible experience. Well, this morning, I want you to suspend your normal way of looking at things and use your imagination, which, by the way, C.S. Lewis and... J.R.R. Tolkien thought was the deepest way that God speaks to us through our imaginations. 
not through our reason alone. They thought myth and imaginative understanding was a unique component of being human. And if you disregard that part of us, the ability to have imaginative understandings and mythic understandings, then you diminish the human experience. <coughs> so this morning, I want you to, to go with me to uh, Bethlehem, Israel, um, uh, roughly uh, 2,000 years ago. And you are a resident of Bethlehem. And the new news, the hullabaloo for the day, is that three foreign dignitaries, very important people, uh, have come to your little village. And they are looking for someone. And who are they looking for? The, uh, a baby that had been born sometime within the last two years. You know, it took them a while to get there. You understand that, right? And so uh, they, they finally were looking for him, and they tracked him down eventually. And their story is, is that what? What did you hear them tell you as they come into your town? What was your understanding? Why are they here? They followed some sort of uh, configuration, luminosity in the sky. And they came from probably Persia, a very long trip. And they are uh, called uh, in Greek magi, magoi, M-A-G-O-I. You could translate that magician, astrologer, uh, worldview, cosmonaut, uh, somebody that's really deep into trying to figure out the meaning and purpose of life and using every tool that was known to humans at that point, including star reading and stargazing and astronomy and astrology. <coughs> and so they're looking for, th- and, uh, and wh- what's your, how do you feel about this? These people have come to your hometown and uh, undergone a long journey and they've followed a star, a configuration of stars, and they say that God or somebody is sending a message through those stars that's objective. And your response is? (laughs) The mushroom patch. (laughs) See, when you read it in the Bible, you read it on this side of the cross, and you read it with the eyes of willing suspension of disbelief, you say, yeah, that's the way it happened because that's the way they told it. But if you'd have been there, it would have been a different story. Now, you might have gone out and checked out the light and you might have had some experiences. There were some other people that had some confirmatory experiences in that place. Who were they? The shepherds. They had some, adi- they had some things to report. So you could imagine that the whole community had gotten together eventually and shared all these stories and then everybody had to make their decision about whether they think these magi had slid into a mushroom patch on the way from P- Persia and got into Israel stoned out of their minds, or if that configuration up in the sky is really a message from God and it is telling you, the human race that something phenomenal has happened. It's a signal. It's a sign. It's a, it's a message. Okay. <clears throat> Anybody else want to add anything to that? Yeah. 
say it one more time because it's a really a good thought. Well, my connections with the folks in Persia tell me that uh, they live more by the dreams and imagination mm -hmm. than we do by far. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not prepared to go any farther than that, but I know that they put more value in that than we certainly do. Yes, they, they're, um, they're epistemology, they're ways of knowing or what they claim to be the ways of knowing is quite more uh, rich, I would say, than the typical Westerner who wants to zero in on provable science. Um, yeah, and that's, of course, Lewis and Tolkien's point is that when you do that, I mean, it's not that you don't get valuable information from science, but if you shut off myth and imagination, then you lose uh, a very valuable way of Human, human way of knowing. So if that was your total way of knowing and you had been in Bethlehem and you had been a pre-scientific scientist living there in the time when these Magi came, your, your response would be what? They, they look like they have a lot of money. It looks like a good business opportunity <laughs> to me. Put them up for the night, really treat them well. Sure, it's an opportunity to make money. Which which, by the way, people in Israel are awesome at. They've been making money off visitors for 2,000 years, and they are the best in the world. So they would do it, yes. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Yes. There's a lot of harder miracles to believe in. Yes. So there's supernatural, but it's not crazy supernatural. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's already been done. Uh, in fact, I brought this, uh, Cindy made this copy for me. But this is what Venus is going to look like, I'll pass it around, on December 3rd of this year. Uh, Venus is here, that's the moon, and that's Saturn. So it's going to be a stunning array of Venus in line with the other planets over the pyramids on December 3rd. And that's just one that's going to happen this year with Venus. But they have the c power now to go backwards, to like run the, uh, the cosmos backwards. And there are a number of plausible um, suggestions for what happened uh, in the night sky. There seem to have been some e episodes back then that could qualify for a configuration. So, yeah, that's been done. And so even if we did, though, even if we got back there and found out, wow, something really cosmic happened in the sky somewhere around 4 to 6 BC, um, then what? If science shows that something did happen? Oh, you know what? You know, you, you're in a Presbyterian church, so you need to get a book called... Um, Evolution and Creation, four, four Christian Views. And the guy that teaches over at Calvin College, which is the Presbyterian uh, you know, power college for one wing of the Presbys, uh, he, he's got this theory that's called fully 
gifted um, creation. And his, he believes that God made the cosmos, but he thinks that, um, it, the only way I can really explain it to you is, let's say if it's a, a, a program, a computer program, he thinks God pre-programmed and made everything at the beginning in his own head and put it into a template. And then when he said, go, it runs without God's direct, immediate intervention. And that means, according to this fellow, that God pre-programmed ahead of time the miracles that would pop up as nature ran along the way that God programmed it to do. But God just programmed the miracles in there as well. That's what you're talking about. Yeah, there's a genius at Calvin College that believes what you believe. So that tells you something about what... Well, that's just an interesting thing. So there's no reason why, of course, God planned it from billions of years ago. There was a configuration of light. Um, yeah, God knew about it and, and accom accommodated the cosmos to make it happen at that particular point. Yeah, it's mind-boggling. Mind yeah. Okay, let's take another walk. Uh, this one's called uh, Addison's Walk, uh, and I brought a couple pictures for you so you could kind of little see, see it. It's a, it's a walk. A w about about a, I think it's about a mile, and it encircles um, Magdalen College. Uh, it looks like you'd say it Magdalen, uh, but they pronounce it Magdalen. Uh, Magdalen College was where C.S. Lewis taught for many many years, and this is the tower uh, that indicates you're getting close to Magdalen College. And if you hook inside there and go into the college grounds. Eventually, you can walk around to where the university uh, buildings are, and eventually, you can get to this place that's called Addison's Walk. And uh, just take it and pass it down. There's another picture of it. So one night in 1931, uh, and it's a beautiful place to walk. It's right around the college. It's a very rural. Oxford, as you guys have been to, some of you have been to Oxford. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. So you go there for a mile walk after dinner and talk uh, about higher things with your colleagues or whatever you want to do. So one night uh, in the fall of 1931, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, and another guy named Hugo Tyson, Dyson are out there uh, having this cosmic conversation until three in the morning. And they get to the climax of the whole thing, and uh, Lewis says <coughs> about the notion of myth, because he was a hard-boiled atheist at that point, and about the notion of myth, he says, uh, they're beautiful, uh, they're interesting, but they're lies breathed through silver. So he wanted to throw the entire pre-Christian mythological corpus, of which he was an expert, along with Tolkien. He wanted to throw it all into the category of what? Myth equals lies. They're not true. Uh, they're beautiful. They're breathed through silver. But they do not give you information that would really help you to become a human being, nor do they tell you anything about the truth of the universe, uh, specifically about God. And Tolkien said, uh, no, they're not lies breathed through silver. What they really are is this was the way that God spoke to the human race prior to Christ through myth. And the humans, being the prisms, yes, they do refract the light that comes from God and distort it to a certain extent. But 
you can't, just because they distort some things doesn't mean that there isn't some germ or ray of truth in what they have received. And they said that as soon as Tolkien got done explaining this, that there was an enormous gust of wind that came roaring through the walkway and literally thousands of leaves descended on them at that point. And it was so palpable and so visible that they were all, for the first time in their life, these three intellectuals stunned into silence. And they could just stand there on Addison's walk. It felt like, Lewis said, it felt like God had spoken through Tolkien to Lewis. And it, it did, it shattered Lewis's head. He had a, some sort of an epiphany then. And two weeks later, he became a Christian. So J.R.R. Tolkien was the one that put the key into Lewis's head and allowed him, with all of his knowledge of all this stuff, because what are we going to do with all these things? Humans, pre-Christian era, searching, groping, as we've studied in this course, groping for the truth and coming up with all these things. What are we supposed to do? Just throw it all in the trash can? Because if we do, then the tendency is, when we're back over here on this side, to do what? to consider the Christian faith as one more myth, and we throw that in the trash can too. And quite frankly, in my view, this is sort of what's happening all over the Western world. We are including Christianity in the pre-Christian myths. We're in a post-Christian era, and all that stuff gets shunted over into the the, uh, category of lies breathed through silver. This is the modern mindset. Yes, sir. Right. Not all of us are going to use the word myth the same way you're thinking. Give us some examples of the myths that Tolkien would have tried to explain to Lewis as God speaking. Oh, well, the, 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 the truth at the heart of the first myth that we studied in this course, the Eleusian Mysteries, the notion that um, there's something cosmic about the, the cycle of planting and uh, releasing, dying, releasing, and then the cosmic harvest. They built a 2,000-year-old ritual on this notion and myths like Demeter and Persephone and some of the other ones that are riding on top of this ritual for 2,000 years are all woven in there. Now, Tolkien would look at that and say, of course you can't take it literally and of course you can't take every detail as if it was God-inspired. But when you peel back and get down into the essence of what the story's all about, it is what? That... There's something transcendental about this seasonal planting and harvest. And Tolkien said that God built the very notion of resurrection and the afterlife into the very fabric of daily life so that we would see it over and over and over and over again seasonally so that when we finally find out and hear that God became one of us and died and rose again, that then we have a seasonal uh, experience to relate that to, and it makes sense. Oh, yeah, every spring we go through this. Everything comes up. Are there examples, for example, of Lewis would have considered? Oh, yeah. So sorry. Thank you so much, fellas. <coughs> Are there examples of biblical creationists? Yes. Yes, uh, he would go back to the very beginning, um, Adam and Eve, and, and uh, would ask the question, um, 
actually what Lewis believed was is that he, he thought evolution had taken place and that God had guided the process. He pretty much believed that. And that at a certain point in time, uh, these evolving creatures passed over into a mystical category called having the image of God. It happened at a point in time, but we don't know when. And that, that was the crucial line. And when from that point on then, those were what God, God considered to be humans. The other ones weren't. They, they didn't have the full development of the image of God. That's what he believed. So, you know, the, the fact that, you know, you read this Adam and Eve story, yeah, it's true that there was, a, at a point in time, Lewis would say, the first humans, and that they disobeyed God. But you don't have to believe the story as it's written with the snake and the fruit tree and all of those things to make it work. All you have to do to make it worth it work is realize that it's telling you a story that humans fundamentally say no to God. And boom, once you get that, that that's what you extract. And Lewis would say, yeah, I, I don't necessarily believe it to be literal, but I think it's telling the truth about the human condition. Is that making sense to you, how somebody would do that? Yeah. So, uh, can you go, what, what would you have done that night if you were standing in Addison's Walk and you were there with C.S. Lewis and you had J.R.R. Tolkien, this was before he was world famous, no one knew who they, these guys were at this point, and they were still young men, uh, Lewis was uh, 36 years old, Tolkien was about 45, and he drops this bomb on Lewis's head, and what has happened in the 20th century as a result of this conversation? Think about this. This conversation took place in 1931. Uh, that's what, 83 years ago? What has happened in the 83 years since that conversation took place? That night in Oxford, Addison's Walk, September 1931, what happened? They went through World War II, so. Yeah, yeah, we weren't, we weren't, we get rid of that positive worldview that we're all ascending, you know. Yes. Yeah. 20th century was a sobering experience for, for the human race, yeah. Well, what about these two guys in particular? 1931, no one knows about them. Now it's 2012. Uh, what, 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 were the, what was the fruit of that conversation? I mean, Tom Shipley said that he thinks J.R.R. Tolkien ought to be nominated as the author of the 20th century. Can you imagine that? Um, and I can't imagine if there's anybody that's sold more books than he has. I mean, if you any of the criteria that you would use for impact, for deep impact on our culture, Tolkien really did it. Uh, I mean, the books, the movies, just absolutely incredible. So. If, if what I see the happening in the 20th century is this modern myth that he told, the Lord of the Rings, it's functioning in our world the way these myths functioned for them. And that was Tolkien's blatant purpose in writing the Lord of the Rings. He wanted to write a modern myth for England, and it just so happened that it turned out to be for the world, that would do for humans what myth is supposed to do, and that is become what? A prism. 
So when you read and watch The Lord of the Rings, what's supposed to be happening, according to Tolkien's belief, is that the rays of truth that God has revealed to him are going to come shooting through that experience, even though it's not a blatant Christian work. It's pre-Christian, and it's designed to lead you eventually to that experience. Yes, John? Well, there's no doubt that uh, there's a lot of Christian influence out there, but I want to focus on a particular form of uh, genre that these two guys in particular did. Yeah, and they're they're doing something that's like absolutely, totally different than what these two guys did. I mean, he's functioning as a prophet. Yeah. Okay, yes, there are people that are doing it. There are other people that are doing it. But I want us to drill down into this particular uh, twosome. So we've got Tolkien. What about Lewis? Once he understood that, watch the flow here. Once he understood that, no, this isn't lies breathed through silver. This is uh, prismatic truth that God has been sharing with the human race from the time of the beginning of the humans and therefore then it will have some coherency or some connection to the central event of human history which is the incarnation so then he went back and saw how it functioned and then he goes into the modern world and does what? Writes uh, some straight up apologetical works in which he blatantly explains then he then he writes the Chronicles of Narnia in which he's doing there what? He's way more blatant than uh, Tolkien. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He writes, Lewis writes allegories, and Tolkien did not like allegories. He hated them. He, he says in the foreword of his book, I cordially dislike allegory. What he preferred was uh, simulated history that you, that the reader was free to make their own application to. So you can read the Lord of the Rings, and you you don't get forced into any particular conclusion. Whereas if you read the Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis is going to beat you over the head with a two by four, and so you get to the place where you realize that Aslan is Christ. <laughs> right. It's two different approaches, but they're both using what? Imagination and myth. So. One of the things that I've tried to share with you in this course is that um, I want to see a revival in our era of understanding that God does speak through myth and through, and Dan, when I use the term myth, I, I don't think I ever really answered your question. Usually when um, modern people use the term myth, they use it the way that Lewis held previous to his conversation with Tolkien. It's a lie. It's just a pretty lie. When academics use it, they use it in the sense of a story that uh, claims or has been associated with the experience of truth, some transcendental truth that is 
inherent to the human experience. Whether the particular story itself really happened or not is not the point. The point is the truth that the myth conveys. And the ones that do the best job, the, one, the myths that really touch the human experience and make sense out of the human experience, they endure, and they're the ones that we wind up reading. These people say, you know, this really has something to do with the human experience. And we learn in seventh grade, right, when you took Greco-Roman mythology, what did you learn? What was, what was the attitude of your uh, professor or teacher? Or any course that you ever took on, on this kind of thing, Greco-Roman mythology, what was the attitude of the teacher? Mm. Yeah, whatever, somewhere around there, they, they, it's there uh, we're going to orient you to the Western world. Okay, so here's the mythologies that people believed. What, did, what was the attitude of the teacher when they were talking about Zeus and all these gods and everything like that? What, how? They were real. Did they act like they were real? Did they, you thought they were real. <laughs> That's great. You know, your teacher must have taught the course from the willing suspension of disbelief. But if, if you taught a course like this and your attitude was sneering superiority from the very beginning and every time you talked about these poor hapless creatures that believed all this trash back then and if that's the way that you taught it, then you can see why the modern human, the modern student would have a stunted appreciation for how God could potentially speak through mythology. And that would nicely creep over into what? <clears throat> Sunday school. When some other entity is up there on Sunday, different than on Friday, waxing on about a boat that, you know, saved a few people when the world was flooded and all these kinds of stuff. And the kid's sitting there saying what? This, is, this sounds very similar to what we studied in uh, mythology over here and it's all pretty lies. We'll throw it in the trash can and we'll go over here and become modern Western people. All right, yes and yes. Oh. <laughs> yes, I got it. It's on. So they turn it into a, a morality book values. for you. Mm -hmm, values course. Okay, that's interesting, yeah. Uh, yes, John. Forgive me for the typesetter, but I taught them as truth. Uh, and they
Okay, so the Greek myths, in your view, they contain what we would call little t truths, right? If we're Christian, this event, the incarnation of the Logos, the Word, is the truth. And uh, so that's an interesting way of looking at it, John, and I would say that's probably what Tolkien was trying to get at, too. Um, now, some Bible passages that we have to look at. 22.16 in the book of Revelation. Into this, into this, you think about this, this has been going on for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Humans have been looking at Venus in the sky and speculating on her and waxing on about her characteristics and creating all of these mythologies about Venus. And did anyone do any writing by the, reading about it, by the way? Did you read about Venus? Well, she, she was known in the ancient world as what? The planet. It was known as a star, but what, what, was, she, what was Venus associated with? What's the core of it? <coughs> Goddess of love. Aphrodite. Isis. The... Um, when I told, it's interesting, when I, Venus, the, the word Venus has been stolen and, and lost because when I told some people in a Bible study over at Congress Lake that we were having a Venus party at Congress Lake um, and we we're going to go out on the boats and, and have a Venus party, they took it as <laughs> Venus. What, how, how did Venus get associated with not just uh, love, but sexuality. It's a, it's a, it's a street term for uh, sexuality, to, to go Venus. You, are you guys aware of that, or have you been in church for so long that you don't know this? <laughs> well, the point is, is that we've got this huge stuff that we've put on Venus. And into this comes Jesus. And what's he say at 22 16? Book of Revelation. I am Venus. He comes right into human history and says, I'm taking over this. I'm taking this over. You've been calling Venus the love goddess. You've been calling her Isis and Aphrodite. You've been engaged in all these rituals and all kinds of different speculations about Venus. I'm taking, I'm taking over all those associations. Now when you look at Venus, I want you to see what? Me. I want you to think of me when you look at Venus. I don't want you to think about Aphrodite or Isis or sexuality or any of those associations that Venus has held in the past. That's an amazing phenomenon. He just goes in and takes it. Now what's the next one? 228. He first, he, he claims, I am Venus. That's the first one. First claim. I am Venus. Now, of course, we know he doesn't mean this literally, so, I mean, we don't have to go through all of that. He means that Venus stands for what I stand for if you look at it the way that I'm telling you to look at it. So you get to Revelation chapter 2, verse 28, and there he says what? The master, Jesus, speaking to us. To those who overcome, to those who win, I will give, I will give you the morning star. So, 
And this is just another way of saying what? I will give you, I'll give you myself. Well, if God is God, if Jesus is God, if Jesus is the greatest in the cosmos, when he says, I will give you myself, then what is Jesus saying to you? I'm giving you the, 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 the best. I'm giving you everything. I will give you me. The morning star. Okay, third one. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. I need a reader. We're going to go through this text um, verse by verse so that we can really understand it. Uh, I need a strong reader. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Do I have a volunteer? Did you guys take a lot of drugs last night? <laughs> the mic is not on. <laughs> no, it's on. Oh, yeah, it is on low battery. Uh, all right, I'll read. I need it. George, let me use your Bible for a second. Second Peter chapter 1. Now, you're looking for the morning star, but what you're really looking at here is a man who's reflecting upon an event that happened 30 years previously. And he's reflecting on it and drawing a conclusion from it, okay? So watch for this. We did not follow cleverly devised, Dan? Did they say stories? In Greek, in Greek it says myths, mythos. We did not follow myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my son, my beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. He's reflecting on what experience? Mm -hmm. It happened 30 years ago. He's going back in time, and he was like, we're not telling you, we didn't make this stuff up about that we're telling you about Christ. We were there with him on the mountain when God transformed him in front of our eyes and we saw him with Elijah and Moses shining with all of his glory. So think about that. Just forget you're in church. Imagine you could go to a place like a mountainous type of region and you'd be sitting there and your guru, your teacher, your rabbi, your master was suddenly lit up from inside with the Shekinah glory of God. Does this remind you of a story in the Old Testament? Moses. Yeah, this is God's doing this on purpose. Moses went into a mountain to get a revelation from God, and when he came down, his face was shining with the glory of God. Jesus goes up to a mountain and allows his inner deity, his divinity, to radiate out. And they see him as he is, not as a Galilean peasant rabbi, but they see him now as the incarnate son of God. And it blows their minds. And what, does anyone remember what the first thing they want to do? Let's build, a, let's build churches up here. And then we can keep you up here and we can go here anytime we want to have a cosmic experience. That's what they wanted to do, build three little churches, three little tabernacles. 
Okay, so 30 years later then, after that, he then reflects on it. Verse 19, we have the prophetic message much more fully confirmed. You will do well to be attentive to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So he t turns from the experience on the mountain and now he tells these people what? What should you do? Here you are in the world. And he's referring back to an event, the transfiguration. And he's saying, okay, we had that experience, but now you're here. What should you do in light of the fact that you believe that this event really is real? It's not a myth. The incarnation really happened. What should you do? What should I do? Yes, we should live here as if we already have the morning star inside of us, because we do. But he says that it, in the future, what's going to happen with this morning star? Look carefully at the passage. And in the meantime, he says you should do something until this event with the morning star takes place. What's going to happen with the morning star? Something's going, it's going to do something. It's going to rise within us. Well, this is poetic, metaphorical language. What happens when Venus rises? What, is, what's, what does she convey? What, what does the planet herald? You guys don't watch Venus? <laughs> She's the herald of what? The herald of the new day, the dawn. So while we're waiting for the new day of Christ to be fully realized, he's telling us in the meantime, that event's going to happen. Christ is going to fully arise within us. We're going to be completely fused with Christ. In the meantime, what does he tell you to do? While we're waiting for this event. To what? Yeah, activists, you should act as if it's really already true. But you need some more assistance. He tells you to do something. He tells you to pay attention to something. Where is it found? You will do well to, pay to be attentive to the prophetic message. Verse 19. Then verse 20, he says, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter. He's talking about what? The Scriptures. He, uh, to, the, to the teachings, yes, to the words, yes. Yeah. So what he's saying is, look, we've had the incarnation. Christ is now living inside of us. In the future, Christ is going to fully live in us. So in the meantime... To, f to make this experience with the morning star as real as it can be in this lifetime, he's telling us to pay attention very carefully to the prophetic scriptures that do what? What's, what's their function? 
they take this event and reinforce it inside of you. You weren't there to see this, but you now have Christ inside of you. If you master the scriptures and fuse the scriptures with that experience of Venus inside of you, Jesus in you, it causes a reinforcing loop, scripture and the spirit working together. Is this making sense? Yes, sir. Well, let's find out, because he, he actually tells us. Uh, look at Second Peter 3 now. Just go over two chapters. I think this is one of the funniest lines in the entire Bible. Uh, verse 14, chapter 3. And therefore, beloved, while you're waiting for these things, what things? V- Venus arising inside of you. While you're, while you're hanging around waiting for this to happen, strive to be found by God at peace without spot or blemish and regard the patience of our Lord, meaning that it hasn't happened yet, salvation. As our beloved <coughs> brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, speaking of this as he does in all his letters, there are some things in them hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Whoa! What does Peter say about Paul's writings? Yeah. But they they can be twisted, yeah. But what does he call them? He calls them as scriptures. So he regards them as, in some way, now I don't, I'm not saying he would uh, be having the Luzon Evangelical Covenant uh, of uh, inspiration in his mind, or any modern definition that w- we would have of an evangelical-inspired f- scripture, all that stuff, you know, arguments that we've had about that. But he does regard them as, in some way, authoritative as being from God. I think the funny part is when he says, what about Paul's writings? Which most people in the human race have agreed since then with Peter. They're hard to understand. <laughs> I think that's funny that he would say that about Paul's writings. So I'm certainly not in his mind would it be the way it is now in people's minds about scripture. But I just think it's interesting he does regard it as inspired. He would primarily have been thinking of the Older Testament. And primarily, he would be thinking, he says what he's thinking of primarily in Second Peter 1, the prophets. Uh, because the, the early Christians didn't think that the law was particularly appropriate to them any longer, so that wasn't the portion of the Bible that they focused on. They focused on the prophets. All right, so here we go. Jesus has now said what about Venus. I am Venus. I'm going to give you myself. And what else? What's the third concept? Uh, I, uh, I will, this is future, arise within you 
as Venus. So in the meantime, while we wait for this cosmic unification with Jesus as Venus, what does he tell us to do? <laughs> that wasn't quite the answer I was looking for, but that, well, that'll do. That, that's a pretty good one. Drill into the scriptures and participate in this reinforcing loop of experience with Jesus and the scriptures together. Let them reinforce each other. Now, last point for today. Five minutes. What's going on in the realm of science over here about Venus right now as we speak? What's happening this year? Number one, Venus is brighter this year than it will be until 2117. So this is a unique year for Venus. Yes? It's, it's going to do the transit of Venus. It's going to be visible on June 5th. You'll be able to look at the sun and see Venus as this little dot as it passes through the sun. It's a very rare phenomenon. Happens um, every 200 and some odd years. And it's happening this year, uh, in particular, acute brightness. Well, this is such a big deal. I mean, it's in the farmer's al almanac. This is, this is, it's true. During our lifetime, Venus will never again seem as spectacular as it does this year, starting as a superb evening star on January 1st. It brightens and climbs in the west until reaching maximum elevation in late March and greatest brilliancy in April at a dazzling 4.7 magnitude. Did you see Venus this April? I mean, it was like awesome. On June 5th, as Andrew said, it's transit of the sun. Uh, an event that will not reoccur until 2117 is visible throughout North America. It appears as a striking morning star from July through October. In mid-March and again in the first half of July, it shines near Jupiter with the moon joining this resplendent conjunction on July 15th. Those are the head headlines on it. It's going to be a big year for Venus. Uh, so what does Venus mean? The Father and the Son crossing. Well, Jesus, that's what I, I, we have five minutes to tease out. What conclusions do you want to draw? Because I gave you all the facts. God said, I, I am the great I am, not the good son. <laughs> okay, the Father could be the Son and Jesus could be Venus, passing in front of the Son. <laughs> I want you to tease out the implications and the, and the uh, conclusions that one could possibly draw from this. That Venus has been a strong myth in the human experience. That God speaks through myth and has done so always. That Jesus comes into the middle of the fray at a certain point and says, I'm taking over Venus mythology. I'm Venus from now on. I don't care what you thought about her in the past. Now you're going to think about me when you think about her. So he claims that and now has allowed us to understand all of these things and we are now, according to the realm of science, in the year of Venus. So what conclusions could you draw? Isn't it ironic? I don't know if it goes isn't it ironic that we would agree to use Venus as a sexual object? 
That is so brilliant. Isn't it ironic that we would sexualize Venus and what Jesus seems to be doing is redeeming it along another type of love, his love, redeemed love. Do you think God could actually be sending a message through Venus this year to the human race and, and telling us, um, well, telling us what? Look <laughs> look out December 20th. Oh, you mean the Mayan thing. Well, see, everybody's talking about Mayan, but no one's talking about Venus. Why is that? What? Yes, there's the Mayan calendar. Everyone's talking about that. It's got nothing to do with Christ whatsoever. No one's talking about Venus. And here's G the year of Venus, scientifically. Venus, Venus, Venus everywhere. And nobody is pointing out what? We want to talk about the Mayan calendar, but we don't want to talk about this celestial phenomenon that's shining down on us every night. Venus exploding out of the sky. Christ is practically saying to us what? Look, pay attention to me, I love you, or whatever conclusions you want to draw from the whole thing. He's the one that's doing it. And then, but we want to talk about the Mayan calendar. Uh, as a sexual form of love, that's what Dan just said. Isn't it ironic that the master grabbed that because we are a sex-obsessed culture and now he's shining down on us every night in, in this sense, sending a message. You got the, your eyes on the wrong kind of love. That's, right? Plausible? John? Yeah, that would be the thing that we would need most of all right now. Well, um, you have to draw your own conclusions. I've been pondering this for a long time. I, I have come to conclude that God has arranged this. And God is, it, the only problem with the whole system is, is that most humans don't know one thing that would make the uh, whole phenomenon work for them. They don't know that Jesus claimed I am Venus. And I've been teaching this now for three months and, and awakening people to this. And 95% of all Christians don't know Jesus said, I am Venus. So if you don't know that, Venus could be booming. She could be 20 times bigger. Then you'd say, well, that's really cool. Uh, what's on TV now? Um, but if you know, if you find out that Jesus said, I'm making a blatant identification between this planet and myself, and I want you to think about that. Once the Christian knows that, and then they see Venus in the sky every night, well, maybe the penny will drop. Yes, sir? Article. Oh, you mean that today was the day that 
th that the true meaning of Venus was announced to the Canton community? <laughs> <laughs> we should have had the we should have had the repository here. Announcement on the meaning of Venus occurs at Christ Church. Um, okay. Uh, thank you for having this course, and I enjoyed studying with you again. Yes, sir. Oh, yeah, you'll have to use an instrument, sure. Yeah, 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 sure. They'll be all available. But the, 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 re <laughs> the rest of the year, you're going to see an explosion on Venus. And uh, if you have any interesting conversations with people about it, I'd like to hear about them. So thank you for studying with me, and God bless you. And See you next time. focus on it then because we had so many other things to uh, talk about because that was that was trying to get the big idea of revelation yeah yeah i remember that sister okay um yeah i mean i think things are going to work out pretty good if we can buy this um, funeral home or buy this thing for our bed and breakfast. Oh, my heart's been with you. Um, yeah, I just pray that the Lord gives me the wisdom to know what to do because I think that this funeral home is for sale. And it is right in front of my breakfast. That's what I'm trying to pull off. So, Pray that uh, God gives me the wisdom to know what to do. They will. They will. I'm pretty excited about it if it could work. I mean, I